This episode is sponsored by VG Plus, an omnivorous record label based in Baltimore, releasing sublime sounds by Picks and Lighters, Susan Alcorn and Philip Greenleaf, Terroplane, and San Francisco Moog, 1968-1972, a collection of previously unreleased music by Doug McKechnie that rewrites electronic music history. Find it on the web at vgplusrecords.com. Well, you know, it's our love affair, mine and his, uh, started when I was listening to his music. We've never met, um, but somewhere he knows that I, I, I am a, a disciple or super fan but um it's like happened i started listening to the records and i wanted to know more and then i started reading every interview he ever did and finding any video on him i could find this is essential tremors i'm lee gardner i'm matt byers the idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Critically acclaimed Grammy-winning singer, songwriter, and violinist Amanda Shires began her career as a teenager playing fiddle with the Texas Playboys. Through the years, she has toured and recorded with notable artists including John Prine, Greg Allman, Justin Towns Earl, and Jason Isbell in the 400 unit, among others. She has released five albums, the most recent being 2018's To the Sunset, and in 2017, Shires was named the Americana Music Association's Emerging Artist of the Year. As a member of Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, Shires won a Grammy Award for Best Americana Album for the band's The Nashville Sound in 2018. The first song Shires chose as being formative for her was I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton.
First song would be um, I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton. Um, the, the, just the way her, the fragility and the strength of her voice and then um, diving in deeper, um, learning that she wrote it, her, you know, wrote it and managed to keep the publishing of it. That was um, a new idea to me at the time. Uh, when would you have uh, heard this? What point in your life? Um, about... Maybe when I was 12. 12, yeah, because I'd been playing the fiddle for a little while at that point. And, um, you know, I listened to a lot of country that had fiddle and then a lot of country that had strings and kind of had my own little mixtapes going on. And I just heard that song and it was just, I'd never seen the movie, the the whorehouse, the biggest little whorehouse in Texas, but I still haven't. Maybe I'll have to watch that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if you're missing much. Um, <laughs> uh, I knew that I know that you uh, grew up in Texas. Was country music always sort of you know the main thing that you heard or listened to, or was it more varied than that? Definitely more varied. Um, I uh, my dad my grandparents listened to country music, and um, my dad listened to uh, you know Pink Floyd and The Doors, and my mom was super into everything from. Van Halen to Steely Dan to the Pretenders. And then um, at my school, country music wasn't cool. So I, I um, but that was fine because I loved rap and R&B and I did that. And um, when I was learning to play violin, I was getting bored with that. And then I went into fiddle and I just loved country music and I continue to love it, um, parts of it. And um, yeah, and then I also played in like mariachis and uh, Tejano kind of bands too in Texas. So I'm one of those music lovers that loves all music. Um, so I guess as a young, uh, violin player, fiddle player, you know, there's, so there's classical music and there's country and, and Tejano and some other styles like that. And then maybe there's not a lot else. I mean, you know, I guess Kansas had a fiddle player, you know, were, were there other paths you could have taken with this? I was thinking rock and roll violin, you know, when as I started uh, going further, and I just tried to, I tried to mimic um, uh, David Lindley as best as I can on the violin, and um, yeah, the, you know, you hear stories of Jimmy Page with his violin with six strings and frets and all that, and it kind of kind of made me feel like anything was possible. So, yeah, you're right though. There's not a lot of a lot of folks to model. That from I mean, I actually started playing the violin because I was listening to this. This could be one of the three West Side Connection song, Bow Down. And it has this part that goes meow, 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 meow. And it sounds like strings if you if you haven't been around very long, like I hadn't. And um, that's why I started wanting to play the instrument and then later found out it was synthesizers. But I kept playing it anyway. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, Dolly has been invoked. um, And, you know, I grew up in East Tennessee, not far from where she grew up. um, And, you know, I always knew her as a country star. But it just and, you know, at the time you're talking about, you know, at that point, she 
was still basically a country star. She hadn't kind of crossed over into being like in films and things like that. Now she seems like sort of a demigod or something like a deity. It's like people love Dolly. Like they don't generally love, um, you know, um, most music figures, much less country music figures. Are you susceptible to that? Uh, you know, are, are you like a mega Dolly fan or is this just, you know, she's a great songwriter and you love that song? No, I, I am a big Dolly fan. I think um, a lot of, of it probably comes from the fact that I'm a woman and she's a woman and um, um, navigating the business as long as she has and retaining ownership and, um, you know, putting up with, with all the all the talk you put up with when you're when you're well she probably well i know she did deal with a lot of people talking about her body and her choices and stuff like that and um just the way that she could deal with things and handle things gracefully and with wit and um i don't know i just i just think that she she's admirable for a lot of reasons and not giving away publishing for i will always love you is pretty amazing not many people have that many balls Right. Well, I mean, you know, and the whole story behind it, which I only learned fairly recently, was that she wrote it for Porter Wagner when she wanted to leave his show. And she like went into it. The story goes that she went into his office and sang it to him. And that was how he said, OK, you can go, which, you know. There's a lot of interesting yeah. um, stories about Porter's, one of them being um, about how long his uh, penis is. That's all I want to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> OK. The second song Shires chose as essential to her formation as an artist was Bird on a Wire by Leonard Cohen. Like a bird on the wire Like a drunk in some old midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free like a worm on a hook like a monk bending over the book it was the shape the shape of our love twisted me My second tune, I've been thinking and I've been having trouble trying to just decide on, you know, because then, then there's that question of West Side Connection and Bow Down, the whole idea of even playing the violin, but that wouldn't be as, as important to me as Leonard Cohen, um, Bird on a Wire. And um, yeah, when I heard that song, that's when I knew what songwriting could be when you could write a song that didn't have any excess or any um, wrong words or wrong, like, you know, every single thing was right. The, the, the syllables, the prepositions, the orders of the words in a row, the, um, 
the intention. I, I really respect the fact that I feel like if you can write what you're, if you can communicate what you feel in your brain into words that that can't be kind of um, argued, I, I feel like that's the kind of writing I admire the most. About what point in your uh, life would you have heard this? This would be when I was about 20, 20, yeah, 20, no, 20, yeah, 20, when I was working in the record store at Ralph's Records in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, this is when I had to alternate listening to Fugazi with my, um, with my uh, record store working mate. Who wanted to listen to what? Fugazi, just all Fugazi all the time. So we had uh, to make rules where I could, he so, could play one Fugazi and then I got to play something. Um, had you been writing songs at that point a little bit just um not for anybody just um i wrote some with this band thrift store cowboys that i was in and um i would i was helping edit but i hadn't really considered writing songs until um i wanted to uh sing sing on a, a record or sing on my own record or demos to prove to other people i could sing in their band should they need a multi-instrumentalist and um, then I discovered that um, you can't just cover anybody's songs unless you have money to pay for you know royalties and stuff so then I started trying to apply the songwriting as a way to um, get out of having to you know pay for pay royalties because I didn't have any money and um, you know and public domain songs are great and everything but it that wasn't really Show, showing that I can sing in a modern way. <laughs> like, I, I could have sang, you know, Wildwood Flower, but who wants to do that again? So, you know, just to connect the dots here, it seems like maybe that um, Leonard Cohen was an influence on your songwriting. I mean, you know, it, it, what do you think that you, you took away from, from him, if you, can, if you can encapsulate that? Well, you know, it's our love affair, mine and his, uh, started when I was listening to his music. We've never met, um, but somewhere he knows that I, I, I am a, a disciple or a super fan. But um, it like happened, I started listening to the records and I wanted to know more. And then I started reading every interview he ever did and finding any video on him I could find. And um, yeah, and then I read that Sylvie Simmons book and... There were a lot of things that paralleled my feelings about music. Well, what I could see him describing, like, you know, I wasn't afraid to be on stage when I was playing an instrument, but I was always struggling with singing on stage, like having stage fright about singing and my voice and the fact that I can't change my voice. It, it is what it is. And um, then uh, the part where he, you know, he wanted to be a country singer, moved to Nashville and moved to Franklin and everything, and um, that didn't work out. And it's just, and that he was a poet first, I don't know, just the seriousness and the um, the care he took writing is, I, I think the other thing that stood out to me, so much so that I decided to go and get a master's in poetry just so I could not only be more confident in writing, but also to try and capture the thing that it is your feelings and your brain onto the page. I have so much to say about Leonard Cohen. <laughs> I'm wearing his t-shirt. <laughs> if, if, there, if there's more to say, by all means, continue. I, I, I am struck by the image of uh, Leonard Cohen in Nashville, you know, g 
going around trying to plug his songs, you know, and why don't you guys, why don't you guys record So Long Marianne? Um, exactly. Oh, man. Thank you, Judy Collins, for everything you did for him. But um, no, I mean, you know, who picked him up from the airport when he moved here was Charlie Daniels. Before Charlie Daniels was Charlie Daniels. It was, um, he was a bass player. He played with Bob Dylan and then he played with Leonard Cohen, of course. But um, that's always one of those things that is a fact I never would have pictured because I didn't know uh, Charlie Daniels the way they knew him because when I came to town, he was, you know, the Charlie Daniels Republican Jesus guy. And, um, but, you know, Things happen and people change. <laughs> the final song Shires chose as being crucial to her was Ed's Song by Richard Buckner. Well, tough is as she does. Won't you slump on over and stir my shuffle down? Once devotion is enough But the walk you whittle Another dream, another drink Over in the basement Not an inch between I'm yours and I have to leave So, take care you throaty fair Shade away. Everything about Richard Buckner's music is, when I listen to it, is makes me feel so many things. And I don't always know what he's talking about, but I know what it feels like to me. And I think that's that's a, a mysterious thing to be able to, um, to com- communicate emotions like that. And kind of in the way that, like... Um, Tweety does, you know, so, or, or wait, let me think, let me take that back to uh, Jay Farrar. Yes. Um, the way that you don't know what in the hell he's talking about with medicine hats or whatever, but you still love it and it feels good, you know. And so that's a relative. Well, I don't know if that's relatively recent. Uh, when when did this come along in your in your life? Richard Buckner was. It's ongoing because he keeps making music, but um I would say shortly after, maybe 25, after Leonard Cohen. But that that song is one that I return to all the time. And it's not a very long song. But, um, yeah, I really like I really like that song for, for moods, you know. Good example of moods. You know, I'm not, a, I'm a writer, I'm not a songwriter. Um, I'm curious about sort of when you know um, a song is a song because it seems like it would be easy to do a lot of things that are sort of just mood things and don't really tell a lot or that are short and maybe, you know, I don't know, they're not going to get played on the radio or whatever it is you think is going to happen to them. When, when, when do you know when that time has arrived that you should stop messing with it? Um, Billy Joe Shaver told me once it's, um, when you can pull a string through it. And I still don't know what that means, but, um, <laughs> but for me, uh, I feel like I'm done with the song when, when I, ha- when I've s- 
when I've said what I had to say, or by the time I've gotten to the end of it, I've solved the puzzle in my brain. Because a lot of times you sit down to write a song and you're just trying to work out what you're feeling. And then when you get to that point where you've made some sense of, of your feelings or what's going on around you, then I think then that's usually when it's done. And um, sometimes it takes a while to finish them because you don't have all the life experience you need to, um, to uh, finish that third verse or that chorus. And, you know, that's why some songs lay around for years and years and some don't, you know. And then there's some people like old uh, Tom Petty who just could do a verse and a chorus and make a song out of that. And that was, that, that's a wonderful idea too. But I don't know if I could do it. I feel like I ramble on and on. <laughs> do you ever set yourself like challenges? Like I'm, I'm not, I'm only going to use a verse and a chorus, no bridge, or I'm, I'm, you know, nothing's going to rhyme. Do you ever do that? I used to do the nothing's ever going to rhyme and then John Prine cured me of that. But, um, uh, just because you can't remember anything if it doesn't rhyme and, um, uh, he's right. But, uh, but the challenges, yeah, I, I used to do that a lot. And thanks for reminding me that might be fun to get back into. I used to do that religiously, like reader's digest style. And, um, I do that a lot when it comes to like poetry, but I haven't done it with songs in a long time. That's that's fun. That's a good idea. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, back to Richard Buckner for a second. Um, you know, he's one of those guys who's been around a long time. I mean, I remember when his first couple of records came out a long time ago. And I think that he's, you know, clearly um, you still, uh, you know, have some uh, reverence for him. And, and I think his music is uh, pretty amazing, too. But he's still... He's still kind of, you know, not that well known. And um, I don't know a lot about about what he what his situations were with labels or anything like that. But I, I would imagine it has something to do with some of that business because um, of the time when a lot of those things were coming out and people were doing independent stuff. And then there were so many like minor labels and. I don't know. I don't blame him. I just try to look for somebody in his <laughs> in his circle to blame. <laughs> I just told the world that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, but you know, there you, you can't I mean, some people you can blame. I don't I don't think there's any reason to blame him, but it's just you know, when someone writes great songs and is a is a, a really um uh, effective, you know, uh impactful singer. And a hard worker. I went on tour with him before, and he works hard, and he plays well, and he's intentional, and yeah, unsung. Not sung enough. And he remains unsung. It's baffling. Mm-hmm. And it happens all the time. So. And then you put that big man on stage with those beautiful songs, and it's just, it is a, it's a juxtaposition, or it used to be, and, and now I just don't see anything, but angelic haloed beauty <laughs> and what if I just showed up tonight while the crush is crumbling from the- this has been essential tremors like the marker line 
Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. One with a runner and the other with a... For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Waved along and swept away.